Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm well. Uh, I don't want to say how well because <laughs> I took a couple of days off last week and posted some photos on my Instagram stories and got a few responses from folks saying that I was rubbing it in their face, that I was able to sort of move freely around the country and they were not able to. So so I have to stay on the down low. It plays into your perpetual guilt because those awesome looking photos <laughs> then were followed up with like an apology about how you weren't meaning to rub it in, which I enjoyed both, I must confess. <laughs> Of course, you know, a couple of people were just joking about the photos. So I put the little bit about, uh, I apologize for writing this in. And then I got a, just a flood of responses to people laughing at that one. So everyone loves Midwestern guilt. Absolutely. So we were talking offline and, you know, as Exponus sort of shifted a bit to a little less frequent, but maybe a little more sort of exploratory, you know, there's been so much that's been happening in the world, but, you know, a topic that's been top of mind for us, obviously, has been China. And I know we were talking about TikTok that's been in the news this week, but one of the reasons it's been the news is what's been happening between China and India. And then we were kind of talking, well, actually, there's lots of interesting things in India sort of itself. And I thought it might be useful to sort of take a step back today and, you know, not talk about whatever I wrote about this week, but sort of big picture what's going on with these countries, with these social networks, and how and if that should sort of impact what the U.S. should do. And I think just to sort of caveat up front, I think we're both coming at this with a fair bit of uncertainty, both because we're talking about other countries that we are not citizens of, not part of those cultures, et cetera, but also it's not totally clear what's the right thing to do either. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I like this. Like, I am most curious about, like, the news that's emerged about TikTok and what to do about it in the United States. But I definitely feel this is a story where the beginning is really up in the mountainous region between China and India. Yeah, I mean, there has been this conflict that is frankly been going on for a very, very long time between China and India and the disputed line of control up in the mountains, way up in the Himalayas. And, you know, there's been occasional flare ups over the decades. But starting in May, there was sort of a new one where, you know, again, it's all sort of fuzzy. It's fuzzy not just because, you know, there's no one it's like there's reporters up there. And also, you know, both sides, you know, are not really talking about it that much. At least they weren't particularly back in May. But also, it's an area of the world where like the terrain is like shifting constantly, right? There's earthquakes, there's mudslides, there's avalanches. And so when you you talk about a unclear border, that border is unclear, not just because it's never been settled diplomatically, but because like the earth is like actually changing under your feet. Right. And that probably contributed to the flashpoint. It sounds like there was a hell of a melee up there. A whole bunch of Chinese and Indian troops just got into it. And it was not weapons. It sounded like it was hand-to-hand combat. And I don't know that the Chinese casualties, if there were any, were reported, but I think I remember reading that there were 20 Indian soldiers that were killed as a result of this. And it obviously stoked nationalist fervor on both sides of that border. Because it's a disputed border, because these flare-ups have happened, one of the very sort of wise things that both sides have done is agreed a long time ago that there are soldiers there, but they're not armed. So that's why when there was a dispute, it ended up being sort of like a fistfight and rocks and shoving. And those deaths, as I think is understand it, were actually like people shoved over cliffs, which is a pretty crappy way to die, just to say the least. You know, obviously with weapons, it could have been much worse, but it sort of gets at the sort of weirdness of the situation. I think in this case, it was China sort of pushing and building on their side and pushing into the disputed area. And then India sort of responding to that. But again, we're dealing it, you know, with something that's very fuzzy, but I think that matters magnified, particularly sort of the nationalistic response on the Indian side. One of the things that's 
by far the most interesting in regards to the Indian government's response. They just decided to do something that I naturally thought was just not a weapon you could really reach for, but they reached for it anyway. And that was to ban all of the social media applications from China that were built by Chinese companies and that were made available in India. And again, kind of surprising. It's also one of those things where, wow, somebody just did that and you realize that's now a weapon in people's arsenals. The irony of that is India were far from the first country to do it. It's actually a trick that another country pulled quite some time ago. Well, let's hold off to to get into that, because I think the India market is actually really interesting for a few different reasons. I mean, you start sort of big picture. China has their own Internet giants that have, you know, penetrated the majority of the company. The U.S. obviously has their Internet giants that have penetrated a huge part of their country, and both are looking for growth. And so you look for growth, and the obvious area is sort of Southeast Asia and India are probably the two sort of next sort of markets that they're focused on. And the India point is particularly interesting. You remember a few years ago where Facebook wanted to go into India with Facebook Basics, and the idea was, well, there's a lot of people that are in poverty in India, and we're going to bring them internet for the first time and was a huge sort of like brouhaha <laughs> for for lack of a better term between Facebook and the Indian government and sort of people that were saying that Facebook was seeking to sort of like colonize the internet I think was how it was framed and obviously that's a very loaded sort of way to put it in India. Mark Andreessen waded into it and did not acquit himself well, well I think is a safe yeah. way to put it and ultimately in the end Facebook Basics was ruled to be illegal, that it was a violation of neutrality. And so it was striking because Andreessen said in the tweet that got him in trouble, quote, denying world's poorest free partial internet connectivity when today they have none for ideological reasons strikes me as morally wrong. <laughs> I remember talking about this with you. And I, yeah, can I can't remember if we podcasted about no, that. No, no, we, we did. I, I very much remember finding a moral argument on the other side of Andreessen on this. Um, <laughs> Refresh me. What was the moral argument on the other side? I mean, you're basically deciding what information people can and can't access by zero rating things that Facebook say are okay and everything else you put behind a paywall. And It's driven by a different motivation, but you're in a version of China or North Korea where someone else is deciding what information you're able to see and what information you're not. I mean, (laughs) that's a strong objection. I'm with you. I can't remember what my position was on this. I think it was more about the fact that Facebook needs to put a muzzle on Andreessen or get him off the board or something those lines. It was so stupid. Uh, But neither here nor there. Actually, it is really interesting. The reason I bring this up is because in the intervening years, what happened was a company called Geo, which is a telecoms operator. And what's very, very interesting is Mukesh Ambani, who is India's richest man. He spent $32 billion building this company. And what's interesting is he made a few really smart bets that made it possible to basically provide service at a far lower cost than the incumbents. So first, it was 4G only. Geo is only 4G. It does not support 2G or 3G. And what's important about this is that 2G and 3G were circuit-based telephony systems. You needed particular kinds of modems that were made by particular kinds of manufacturers on both the phone side and the other side, whereas 4G is straight data, right? So when you make a call on a 4G 
mobile phone, that call is being changed into bits and it's going over like you and I are talking, right? We're talking over the internet. We're not using a traditional circuit-based telephone system. We're talking over the internet. Well, 4G is the same way. Everything goes over the internet. What that means is because everything's data, you can use a much more sort of commodity hardware in a way that 2G and 3G networks need the special specialized hardware. So they're much more expensive to build than 4G networks. And also because of this, providing voice is actually free. The amount of bits that you and I are using to talk to each other is very, very low relative to, say, watching a movie or listening to music or any other sorts of things. And it sort of flipped the economics of mobile on its head, where voice was cheap or basically free. And then the actual build out was much more inexpensive than previously because everything was commoditized to a much greater degree than 2G or 3G. And so by doing 4G only, making this massive, massive bet, he built out geo across all of India and then sold super inexpensive mobile plans to these millions, hundreds of millions of people that had never been on the internet. And suddenly they got on the internet and they could give them voice for basically for free, right? Remember, voice is super cheap. So you have this instant benefit of getting online and you can talk to people that you couldn't before. And now you have access to the internet. And by the way, it's all the internet. It's not the Facebook decides the internet. It's all the internet. And Geo is, it's super valuable. Like Facebook actually ended up investing into Geo because as a way to sort of get into the country and you're going to work with Geo on, uh, you know, using WhatsApp for commerce and those sorts of things. And they're also sort of wiped out all the incumbents because they just had superior cost structure. It was classic disruption, to be honest, but it was disruption combined with just a massive bet on the front end. And frankly, this is what made Andreessen look dumber than anything, right? Andreessen wrote that it's time to build essay. This was one of the canonical examples of the power of actually building. Mm Mm-hmm. You did an excellent job of outlining that. I love this because it's like it's like a modern day example of Clay Christensen's mini meals coming out and taking out U.S. Steel. And yep, you, absolutely you, no, they, like Clay Christensen would have loved the story. Of oh yeah, like it, it would have been like a whole book. Yeah, U.S. Steel. Like, why would we want to invest in new steel fabrication plants? We have these existing steel fabrication plants, and the mini mills have nothing. So they invest in this future technology that gives them a lower cost basis, and then just move up market and wipe out. Obviously, the dynamics here are just a little bit different. Like, he's no, they're not different. It's a great example. Like, I want you to dwell on this. Like, it's such a textbook example of disruption where a technological shift, which in this case was embracing 4G, which is completely packet switched. It's not circuit switched. It completely transformed the economics of building out this network. Let me restate what I said. The mini mills didn't have the luxury of like $32 billion to build out a network in the same way. Like That's they, true. they started <laughs> having, at the very low Having the country's richest man build it out did help. That is the distinction I was trying to draw. But this is what makes incumbents so vulnerable to disruption on an ongoing basis. They are not willing to make investments, they'd rather leverage what they already have or make an investment that gives them a cost advantage, like a cost basis advantage or leverage the latest technology going forward. And that makes them vulnerable. Like you can predict 
when the CFO, not to pick on the CFO, but like when the CFO sees this, they're like, you can't make this investment. So someone who has to work with the CFO regularly. I, lo- I love our CFO. He's a very <laughs> smart guy. Sorry, Thomas, if you're listening. But it's oftentimes the CFO. It's like, why would we invest to create this thing? We have excess capacity in our existing network. Let's just use that. Geo is the perfect example of why. You just give yourself a massive cost and technological advantage. And by the time the incumbents realize what's going on, it's just too late. They're being wiped out. The other important piece of this, by the way, China does play an important role in this, which is all these Chinese handset manufacturers, which were in a race to the bottom in China. Well, guess what? There is now this huge customer base of folks that make dollars a day at best and want a phone that like this is where those $25 Android phones are actually a huge deal and like a world changing sort of deal because that was the other part of it. It wasn't just that the network existed and the plans were very inexpensive and you could you know buy them on a metered basis, but also the handsets were there because of the smartphone revolution was far enough along that the cost curve had been driven down on all these components. You had this massive competition in China in particular between companies like Oppo and, and Huawei and Xiaomi, and they were looking for a market because they were just competing themselves to death in China. And so it came from both sides. It was the Chinese on the sort of the bottom the handset side and then Geo on the telecom side that sort of worked hand in hand to make this revolution possible. And then this is where it gets interesting. You have the foundation layers of the stack. Geo's got the base and then you've got the Chinese handset manufacturers with all the devices. But then the fight goes up the stack, just like it is in the Western markets where it's like, what are the apps or what are the services or what are the integrations that get built and who's going to win those? And that's where it starts to get really interesting. Because like you said at the beginning, you've got China kind of being saturated. You've got America kind of being saturated and Europe kind of being saturated. And then there are battleground markets and you're seeing these giants oftentimes out of the United States and these giants out of China, and they're fighting it out. They're duking it out in India. Oh, yeah. And it's all parts of the stack. So video is a huge one. You have Netflix making huge investments there. You have Disney buying Hotstar. Amazon is there like all in. Their e-commerce is a huge thing. You have Flipkart being bought by Walmart for the e-commerce thing. And this one makes the India market different than other markets. And I think we'll bear on what we're getting into in a moment. But India has always been quite a bit more protectionist. So in the case of e-commerce, there's a lot of rules around what has to be sourced locally or what has to be the amount of local control, those sorts of things. But that's not holding back folks from making massive investments there. Obviously, Google is there with YouTube. Facebook, you know, one of their most important markets, not just for Facebook, but particularly WhatsApp. WhatsApp is probably the single most important app in the market. And part of this investment with Geo, I mentioned before, is, is getting WhatsApp into commerce, particularly in terms of the local sort of markets and things on those lines. Payments are a huge thing. Paytm, you know, India did this demonization and, you know, lots of things around that, leaving aside it, but that's a drive to sort of more electronic sort of payments. And all this, you have Chinese companies that are competing with the U.S. companies for this market. Again, it's a huge market in sheer size, but it's a huge market as far as like sort of greenfield goes because you have all these people coming online that were never online previously. And yes, you know, the dollar amounts are relatively small because they are quite poor. But in aggregate, it's a very big deal. So you have this situation where India is this huge important market, is sort of the crossroads of all these companies. And I think all that gives sort of the context 
for what we open up talking about. Right. And I mean, the part of the stack where I think this is most interesting and where we, we should focus on here is like social media. TikTok, this app originally out of China, but India is their largest market. And so when the Indian government decided to pull out this weapon and deploy it, like it's kind of crazy, like largest market in one fell swoop for some of these social apps just got blocked. They can't operate there anymore. Yeah, so TikTok was originally based on Musical.ly, which was also founded by a Chinese national. But it's really based on Douyin, which is you know a short video app that's in China. And it's owned by ByteDance. And ByteDance owns TikTok. The way to think about it generally is TikTok's not highly monetized. Douyin is much more monetized. And they have ByteDance has a bunch of services in China, both video and also text and those sorts of things. Kind of ByteDance's modus of operation is they're very focused on sort of algorithmic promotion of content. Whereas like Facebook, obviously, is driven by engagement, but a very important part of what you see is based on sort of like who you follow, right? Where there's a follower component to TikTok and to ByteDance's apps. But what you see, it's much more of a black box. Like you're liable to see, particularly if you're just scrolling through, you know, when you first open it, stuff that's promoted that you're not following is kind of put into your feed based on who knows what it's based on. Assuming there's lots of stuff around engagement and people that are responding to it, et cetera. Etc. But it's a really fascinating application for a few different reasons. And I think one of the big ones is that video is just more compelling. You think about the development of social networks and you go back to like Facebook, for example, and Twitter were the first ones and they started out by being text. Well, why are they text? Because text was easy, right? Text is the easiest thing, the first thing to go online. And even by the mid 2000s, you know, yes, more and more people had broadband, but photos were still rare. And the big thing was people didn't have phones, right? So to get a photo, you had to actually take a picture with your camera, connect it to your computer, move it on your computer, and then post it on Facebook. It was a big thing. Despite that fact, Photos became a big driver on Facebook, a big driver of engagement. And Facebook really started to emphasize them in the feed because people responded to photos more than they did text. And obviously that exploded with mobile, right? Became a much bigger thing. I see mobile sort of explode that. If you think about Instagram, what makes Instagram interesting, it's like, oh, Instagram started with photos. Well, there's an aspect of it's not that Instagram's focus on photos was necessarily this some sort of superior strategic insight that people like photos more than text. I think timing is a big part of this. It just happened to be the case that Instagram came along when smartphones were out there and you could take photos easily and post them. And of course, you would do a photo-based social network, not a text-based social network. That was why Facebook saw it as a threat, right? Facebook knew that photos were way more compelling and engaging than text was. And Facebook had sort of levered itself up to being about photos. Then Instagram as long as just about photos, Facebook could understand more than anyone else why Instagram was a threat and thus could buy them $4 billion. I was like, oh my word, why are they spending so much money? At least some people, despite the fact they were quite small, because they had an idea of the trajectory that was implicit in that medium. Right. And then the response to Snapchat and video, I think, is just an extension of the point that you're making. Like they saw the fact that going from just like individual photos and then starting to incorporate video into that. That's exactly the point, right? The social network that comes along later is not going to be about photos because what's even better than photos? It's video, right? It's very compelling. And the brilliant bit about stories on Snapchat is not only could it be video itself, but it presented photos like a video, right? It was sort of this progression of things that were coming through. And that was that much more 
engaging. And what's interesting is when, you know, Facebook, again, picked up on it, they tried to buy Snapchat, but when Snapchat turned them down, then they put stories into Instagram. And at the time, it was like, wow, are they ruining the secret sauce of Instagram, right? By adding this sort of different sort of interaction model and different sort of way to consume content. And it's more ephemeral and, and more authentic as opposed to being sort of polished like Instagram photos were. Obviously, it was the right thing to do from a business perspective. It was hugely successful. But I think it's important to go back and realize that what made Instagram successful with photos is that photos were a compelling medium that people like to look at. And if you think about it from that perspective, that's not that Instagram was a photo app, it was an entertainment app, then of course it needed to go to video, needed to go to stories, needed to go to this new sort of medium. And oh, by the way, Facebook sort of solidified its TikTok cloning plans this week by retiring Lasso, a standalone app, and Instagram Reels is basically a TikTok clone, and it's in Instagram, and that's exactly where it should be. Because Instagram, it turns out, is not a photo app. It's not just a social network. It's an entertainment app. And entertainment, you want to have the most compelling form of entertainment in the app. It makes a ton of sense then, right? That TikTok starts with video. It's like... <laughs> of course it, it's going to be popular, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing, right? Instagram was TikTok of 2011 or whenever it launched because the best possible, most compelling medium that people could produce was photos. Well, TikTok, the most compelling medium that people can produce is video because we now have 4K you know, video cameras in our phones. Of course, it's video. Of course, the next social network is video because a social network is not just about connecting people. It's about entertainment. It's about when you're standing in line at the bus stop, when you're sitting on the can, you want to just fill some time sitting on the couch, whatever it might be. And it makes sense that the most compelling form of that entertainment is going to be very popular. We saw this with radio beat out newspapers, then TV beat out radio. It's the exact same sort of progression just happening on the small screen. I think it's a great point, but here's the interesting thing for me, which is it made sense that Instagram and Facebook were well-placed to take on Snapchat because the fundamental source of all the content, whether it be photos or video, behind social networks up until this point has always been your friends. But here's the thing. I think in what you just described, you use the term both entertainment and also social network. But traditionally, most of the entertainment content that people have gotten hasn't been from their social network. And it's been cool to en enable all your friends to make videos and enable the world to do it. But actually, chances are the source of the most entertaining content is going to lie outside of your social network. And that brings up yep. two things for me. One is actually, is this time around Facebook and Instagram best positioned to just do what they did last time? Because Snapchat was still competing on the basis of people you knew and interesting content from people you knew. And Instagram was able to head them off at the past because their social graph was built out way more. But if you're really going for full-on entertainment made by anybody, then actually opening it up in the same way that Facebook didn't do a time-based timeline, but switched to an algorithmic timeline to be able to introduce the piece of content that you are most likely to engage with. TikTok had this inherent advantage because of their algorithm, like social matters a little bit, but not a lot. 
They have this massive, much larger pool of content to be able to pull on, to show you and to share with you. And in Instagram or Facebook, you're able to get a little bit of that if you actively go out and follow a meme account or something. TikTok's kind of built that in and it's really very clever. And that algorithm, the way I've heard it described is it's almost like running hundreds of thousands of pilots all at once, like showing little audiences, little clips and seeing where the engagement is. And when they see engagement, they just show it to more people and more people. And it's like all these shows in one big competition to see who can get the most views. It's such a great insight because you think about it, the trade-off with video being more compelling to watch is it's more difficult to produce, right? It's harder to produce a compelling piece of video content than like if you want to take a photo of a beautiful place, it's the beautiful place that's doing all the work of the photo. You know what I mean, right? When I'm on a mountaintop and I take a picture, the mountain is doing the work to make that picture a compelling piece of content. You right? have some very great composition skills though, Ben. Well, thank I, you. I, I forget. Yeah, <laughs> there is some aspect of that. But the video Video, like you see this with TikTok, like they're sketched out. And yes, there are memes that go around and people follow a set sort of thing and do variations on that, all that sort of thing. But by and large, the production of video is more difficult than the production of a photo, which is more difficult than the production of, well, maybe not. That's photos were kind of an interesting inflection point where it was super easy to produce, but video is definitely different. And given that, your point about the algorithm is so important. TikTok is really not that much of a social network. It's a great point. It's much more of a user-generated video app. And it needs to be that way because not only is it more compelling to do all those A-B tests you know, all over the place and yeah, the pilots, it's a great sort of analogy, but also, like you said, to have sufficient content for people to watch, you have to be able to pull from outside your network because your friends just aren't great videographers. Sorry. It's true. And in the context of this being the next thing, being the next potential Snapchat, it's competing for that moment. Like you said, I'm bored. I'm, <laughs> I love how you always go back to, I'm sitting on the can. I now know that most <laughs> of your social media have been sitting on the can. It's like, there are a lot of people in India in that space and they're improving their algorithm and generating lots of content and you start to get network effects. And once this is going, it becomes really hard to break in. And so this very narrow slice of the context of the market, this ban by the Indian government is actually, it's like a really big deal. Actually, here's an interesting question. I don't know the answer to this. You mentioned network effects. I wonder if a trade-off here, though, is that TikTok is might be actually less defensible than a Facebook or an Instagram because the implication of you pulling from the broad base of content creators to deliver algorithmic feeds to users, and it's less based on who you follow, that suggests there are actually fewer network effects. Well, that's true. As long as people are willing to take the content and cross post it, if you're willing to go to the effort of taking your TikTok and posting it on Facebook or Instagram, that's true. But I think the defensible thing isn't the graph, it's having access to the content and then maybe some degree of insight into okay, like this content is doing well, but at the same time, there's an algorithm where not everyone just sees the same thing. Like you're going to have insight on which users prefer which things. And so being able to customize the feed on the individual side is also something of a moat. And this is where it's important to bring YouTube, I think, into this, right? TikTok is very much a threat to YouTube in many respects because it's video, it's algorithmically, like that's what YouTube does, right? YouTube is not a social network. Yes, you can subscribe to sort of creators and that is actually, I think, more akin to following people on TikTok, but then it gives you the next video to watch, the next video to watch, the next video to watch. And TikTok 
does that, but on steroids, right? YouTube was not mobile first. YouTube was desktop first and the videos are oriented the wrong direction. And, and there's a assumption of sort of like control, whereas TikTok, bang, tap, 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 tap. And you can look down. Oh my God, I've been watching videos for the last 40 minutes. Where did all the time go? It's unbelievably immersive. Right. You're spot on. Like that's the extension of the point I was making earlier. I guess in some respects, from a time perspective, I think TikTok probably does compete more with the likes of Instagram or Facebook, but from a content and mechanism perspective, it's definitely a primary competitor of YouTube. And that distinction between it's almost like geo coming along and building it from scratch versus YouTube being on the old 2G or 3G network with desktops. Like that's the distinction in how they've been built. Maybe another way to think about it is like blogs versus Twitter, right? Whereas, yes, you can do like you can upload whatever you want on YouTube, but by and large, the ones that get traction are, you know, pretty highly produced, you know, very compelling. And yeah, it's like making a blog post. Whereas Twitter, you just dash off a tweet and TikTok is a bit more on those lines. Again, it's not a perfect analogy because I think the TikToks that succeed are like they're scripted. They have storyboards. Like there's a lot that goes into creating these sorts of things. It's like at the confluence of all these different sort of streams, whether it be video capability, whether it be algorithms that can, at scale, to your point, run hundreds of millions of tests at any time to figure out what is compelling and what isn't. The other thing that's interesting, and I mentioned this on Dithering with Gruber, is thinking about TikTok relative to Quibi, like this sort of disastrous mobile video startup. What's interesting is Quibi was just such an arrogant sort of idea, this idea that, oh, professionally produced content is always going to be better. And are we sure about that, right? <laughs> because what TikTok does is the vast majority of content on TikTok is garbage. That's always the case with user-generated content. But it turns out 0.1% of a massive, massive amount of content is super compelling. And you find that 0.1%, not by being a picker like Jeffrey Katzenberg, you find that 0.1% by computer sorting it. That's right. It's crowdsourcing. All of TikTok's users are simultaneously voting on where the best videos and this sort of voting mechanism is happening at scale constantly and accelerates and feeds on itself because once a couple of videos start to bubble up, that gets spread more further. People are basically, in effect, voting based on how much they're watching it. And that gets bigger, bigger, bigger. And very efficiently and very quickly, the absolute best 0.1% rise to the top and you realize man, why would I'm going to spend millions of dollars to produce this content and be gated by the ability of a picker up front with all this content I get for free and actually it's better? Yeah, and it's quirkier and it's an incredibly well-made point. It lends itself to being on the can, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, uh, so there's a lot of interesting things here. I do think there's some aspect of TikTok that is a little less defensible. For example, compared to YouTube, for example, YouTube, the archives matter, right? For lack of a better term, like just the library of content on YouTube is super valuable. Sort of like, you know, the music sort of industry where what came before is super valuable and important. Well, on Facebook and Instagram, I think the network effect is stronger than on TikTok. TikTok, there certainly is the algorithm. ByteDance is good at this. Like ByteDance first did this algorithmic stuff with text. I think it's called Totiao. So this concept, yes, they make all their money now and they're well known for their video products. But what they really are is an algorithmic driven company. That's what they're good at. And that is valuable and unique. And obviously you need the 
critical content of creators to be on there. Like there are data effects. Like it's almost like a Google, <laughs> you know, like there's an aspect of TikTok that is quite Google like where having a critical mass of suppliers or content, having a critical mass of consumers, and then being able to leverage the data that results to sort of sort and make things better. That actually might be the best analogy of all. Yeah, I agree with that. But on the flip side, you can definitely make a competing search engine, right? And you can make a competitor to TikTok. I think, again, not to say it's easy, but I think a little easier than making sort of a Facebook competitor. Well, I tell you what certainly would make it easier if like one of the largest markets for this type of app all of a sudden had a vacuum miraculously appear in it. That's right. So now to the topic of the podcast. It took us 40 yeah. minutes to get here. <laughs> yes. So this whole market of this Indian market, 600 million downloads, I think, of TikTok. I'm pretty sure that it was the largest market. And because it is based in China and the servers are in China, the Indian government can go and say two things. One, they can go to ISPs and say, you know, block this app. And they can go to Apple and Google and say, pull it from the store. And boom, TikTok's not in India. It's crazy to me because it just like wiped from the face of the map, but it shouldn't be that crazy because that's the exact trick that the Chinese government's been pulling for some time. And yeah, the Great Firewall, I've obviously always found it objectionable. That shouldn't be a surprise to you or to anyone that's been listening for a while based on like principles that I hold dear. But it was a lot less objectionable when China was using it as a border to stop things coming in. Like, okay, this is objectionable. We're going to stop things coming in or we're going to keep an eye on what's being spread inside. And if there are things that we don't like, then we're going to tamp down on it. We're going to censor it. And they use the Great Firewall in that way. But what's interesting about this border, and it's almost like the West or even other countries around the world, like we've being the frog in gently warming water because China's gone from an importer of data to an exporter. And TikTok's a great example. Like those algorithms and control of that data is in many instances resting in China. I just want to jump in real quick. This point, it can't be said enough. But I get annoyed and, um, you know, Aaron Levy, CEO of Box, great guy. Uh, but I, I, got, I had to respond to him on Twitter this week. He tweeted, you know, about the U.S. looking at banning TikTok, which we'll get to in a moment. He said, quote, the unfortunate march towards having multiple internets continues. And my response was, it's not a march towards. It's been the reality for 20 years. Like, again, this point cannot be made enough. China is the one that broke apart the internet. And it is so solipsistic to say, oh no, we're breaking apart the internet. Oh, the US is being so mean. Come on, wake up. Like you may dislike the US, you may dislike the government, but you don't get to change the reality where everything is the US's fault. China started building the Great Firewall in 1997. It's been an ongoing thing for a quarter of a century that they are putting a barrier around their country and they are keeping U.S. companies out or companies from all over the world, but particularly U.S. companies just because they're the dominant internet companies. Google, obviously, Facebook, Twitter, Wikipedia, go up and down the list. And again, primarily for ideological reasons and for you know control of information reasons, but it has turned out to be a massive benefit to Chinese internet companies. And you know this is not saying that's good or bad. You could make a case that actually it was a great idea by China because now they have big internet companies. You look at a country like India where they're being a huge country that's being fought over by China and the US. It's, it's kind of like, oh, where's our companies? So you could actually make the case that it was a great thing by China, but you have to admit that it is the case and the internet is not suddenly fracturing in 2020. It has been fractured for a long time. Sorry, that was a rant, but I wanted to rant about this. No, 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 I totally agree. 
I started to try to write about this and I kind of thought better of it because it's not fully fleshed out yet, but I tried to look for a metaphor that described this. And the one that I landed on was China established a border and put border guards on one side. And it was fine when everyone was exporting stuff into China and China was just importing things and then like, no, not this, not this. But the moment that it started to become an issue is like China started exporting things. It's like there's a border now and there are guards on one side who are determining what comes in and what comes out, but no one in the rest of the world has decided whether that's a worthwhile thing to do. And the data, for example, TikTok, we're talking about all those algorithms and what gets shown and displayed. Well, TikTok's based in China, servers based in China, algorithm developed in China. The Chinese government and Chinese tech companies are fisting glove. And there was no better illustration of the dangers of that than last year during the Hong Kong protests. And you wrote this incredible article, and I still think it's one of the best things that's been written on this whole topic. But you did a search for the Hong Kong protests on TikTok, and there was one video that showed up that kind of painted the protesters in a bad light. And the rest was just like Hong Kong life is normal. And the extent to which these social media apps become a source of news and information for people. And you saw it with the Black Lives Matter topic that we covered last time. It's a dangerous game we're playing where there's a border and there are guards on one side, but nobody else has put guards on the other. There's a lot to unpack there. I, I really want to sort of drill down into a few of the points that you made. First off, you noted that the data in China, servers, et cetera, TikTok will argue with you about this. They'll say, oh, no. Well, they'll famously say we are a Cayman Islands company, which we've sort of made fun of endlessly on, on dithering. But also they'll say, oh, the data is not in China. And there is a concern about data for sure. And TikTok is a data vacuum. I mean, you saw this sort of thing with like the copying stuff of the clipboard and like everyone's putting it in their face and what sort of facial data are they collecting? And Believe me, China has a file on you. Like they certainly do on me. I know that for sure. But you travel to China and there's facial recognition at the airport, at your hotel when you check in. It's hard to explain if you haven't lived in a Chinese culture country, but there is sort of a culture of this sort of bureaucracy that goes back you know, like literally like thousands of years, just even in Taiwan, again, a free country, democracy, et cetera, et cetera. Like you have to go in, you have to register where you live and you have to register when you have kids and when you get married and you have to get that registration if you want to go get a car or you want to like, there is this idea of a centralized bureaucracy that has all the data about all the citizens that is just sort of core to the way Chinese countries work. This isn't even like a communist dictatorship, totalitarian sort of thing. It's just the way it sort of works. You layer on top of that this sort of communist sort of approach that we've seen even in Western countries like East Germany, for example, you know, where it layers on like that sort of inherent to the totalitarian state. So you have this combination of a country that culturally is inclined towards this bureaucracy with a totalitarian mindset and ideology. Needless to say, China is collecting data on basically everyone, right? And they can and will use it against you. So that is a concern. But a super important distinction you made is that the algorithms are made in China. And this cannot be overstated because even if TikTok were able to prove to everyone that the data is not in China, you know, or whatever it might be, the algorithms are from China and they always will be because that's part of what makes ByteDance valuable. They're really good at it for one. And two, you're silly if you think that China is not going to keep this level of control where they get to basically decide what 
millions of people see or don't see. And yeah, the Hong Kong one is a great example. You could not find a single video in TikTok that was supportive of the protests while it was going on in Hong Kong. Allegedly, American app with American data. Why was that? What a coincidence, right? I showed the same thing with the NBA thing went on. If you search for the Lakers, you got pictures of the Lakers. If you search for the Celtics, picture of the Celtics. You search for the Rockets, you didn't get anything because the Rockets were not popular in China. And to be clear, TikTok came back like, oh, we're not doing that. We're not controlling that. We need to talk to our engineers. No, one, I don't believe you. Two, how can you know, Mr. Western spokesman that is, you know, there to put a face on this company? Like, how can you know that's not happening? What I have in front of me is evidence that sure feels like it. And even if they weren't, the capability quite clearly exists. And so you have something just to go back a few weeks ago, there was a whole thing about the Trump in Tulsa in that rally, right? Let's have a rally in the middle of a, of a pandemic. Weave that aside, there was this idea that, oh, people were taking credit for buying tickets and overstating how many people would be there, and it was organized on TikTok. Well, how do you organize on TikTok when we just established it's not really a social network? It's sort of this algorithmic-driven sort of thing. Like, who decided that those videos would become videos that would be popular that people would see? Maybe it was just by chance that they bubbled up and the test played. Maybe someone had their finger on the scale. We have no idea. We have no idea. All we know is that these algorithms come from a company that is in a country that is opposed to liberal democracy, has already shown its willingness to extend its censorship to U.S. social networks that are supposedly blocked in China and to leverage its commercial might to get sort of airlines to change the name of Taiwan, to get hotels to do X, Y, Z, to get the NBA to demand a sort of apology for someone posting a tweet that says free Hong Kong. I mean, in trying to establish how big a deal this was, I went back to one of my old favorite topics, which was Facebook, when they decided to launch that experiment on a number of users and they published the research and there was a massive outcry. But the net result of the research was you could start to sway people's emotions. Now, I was pretty upset, like lots of people, that Facebook did that and they didn't abide by the standard culture of how experimentation and research should take place. But it came out, they committed to doing better. And actually, I believe them. Like, I don't think that kind of thing would happen again. And they're very careful not to do it. And like, people are very careful. Can I say the same thing about a company operating in China? I'm just not sure I can. So this is where I think the U.S. angle is an important one. We kind of jumped out of India very quickly. I think the India one, it's interesting from a China is a great power competitor. So there is a real national security issue, but also there is an aspect of the sort of protectionism where maybe India should have its own great Internet companies. I mean, there's certainly an argument to be made about that. And I think the point you're driving though, sort of at the beginning is, oh, wait, there's lots of interesting angles to India doing this, but it really raises the question, should the U.S. do this? Again, it seems so foreign, like, wow, the banning an apple, the China does that, the Great Firewall, why would the U.S. do something like that? But you start thinking through the implications of what this app is, what it means. I've made this point again and again, we've talked about the U.S. and China. Like, this is not me being anti-China. If anything, I would say I'm relatively sympathetic, you know, something like Hong Kong, right? It's like, oh, abide by the basic law or abide by a law that a colonial power imposed on China. Like I can understand sort of the point of view. My entire bit about the U.S. versus China is that 
we have to accept that they are different countries with different value systems, and that is going to present a fundamental sort of conflict that's inescapable. But inherent in that is not being opposed to TikTok or worried about TikTok because I want Facebook to win. It's being worried about TikTok because it is such a powerful potential vehicle for a view of the world that me being an American is is opposed to. I completely agree with that. And in terms of the things that concern me the most, I think that's the number one thing. That being said, and you're right, I don't think I'm opposed to TikTok because I want Facebook to win. But like one of the fundamental tenets of trade policy is reciprocity, right? Like you do something for me, I do something for you. We lower tariffs on one side, well, we'll lower tariffs on the other side. And you've alluded to this over the course of this podcast, but another one of the rationales where I was like, actually, I have some sympathy to the view that we should consider a ban is just like China's effectively created this economic spawning pool for these apps in this massive market that US companies can't compete in. But when the winner emerges, they can fly out of the pool and come compete inside of the United States. And it barely seems fair. Oh, it's not fair at all. I mean, it's not fair on multiple levels. It's not fair in that the U.S. doesn't get to compete for the Chinese market. But to your point, TikTok is an evolution of Douyin. It's not like this, oh, scrappy startup that figured out how to do this. <laughs> like, they, no, it's been honed and it's been developed on the billion person market that is China that is much more mobile first than the US and you know we've talked about this in the context of silicon valley you know kind of emerging from fighting each other for decades right. and then the process of evolution and you hate these lean mean killing machines and their release on corporate america and like it's it's just a killing zone like that's tiktok Facebook doesn't need our defense, but there is an aspect here where it is fundamentally unfair that Google and Facebook don't get to compete in China and Chinese companies do get to compete in the U.S. So, yeah, it, it is really a fair point. There is one other aspect to this, too, which is and this is probably I think these points are in order. There are folks who come out from behind the Great Firewall and come study or work or live inside of countries like the United States or Australia or wherever, and they still remain connected along this apparatus. Like they still use Weibo, they still use TikTok. And that still means that they're subject to like the same censorship and the same degree of surveillance or some degree of surveillance that they would still experience behind the firewall. And it means they're less likely to be open. They're still more concerned about like engaging around some of these ideas. And I don't know. As I've found, I've talked to people from China and it's like, I don't know. I want to talk about this. I get into trouble. And it's like, well, let me introduce you to Signal or one of these other apps where we can talk about it. And uh, yeah, you're not being watched or whatever, but like, they're even scared to talk about it on iMessage. And like, I feel like that is also a reason why we should consider it. Oh, WeChat is a huge vector for this. I mean, it, WeChat is very much a vector for the Chinese government to exert its control all over the world. It's true. It, it just absolutely is the case. This is the point you were talking about, right? It was easier to ignore. Yes, you could have sort of principal objections to Chinese blocking information. At the end of the day, again, I don't like that. I don't want to live in a country that is censoring information, but it is their country, right? There is like some aspect to that. Like we live in the real world. And this is the point I sort of making about Hong Kong. You know, I love Hong Kong. It's an amazing city, 
I'm sad that it is being absorbed so blatantly into China. But at the end of the day, China's China, right? But it's this line crossing of exporting, exporting surveillance, exporting censorship, and with TikTok, potentially exporting political control and speech and impact, or to your point, just sort of moods or whatever. And again, it's not just a Trump rally. They were blocking Black Lives Matter hashtags. There was a big sort of thing a few months ago. And yes, they did a big mea culpa. <laughs> you want to talk about Facebook doing mea culpas every month. TikTok is mea culpas every week. <laughs> I mean, like, and again, this isn't just about Facebook winning or the US government. Like The whole defense we made last week as we expected, some people were upset, like, oh, how can you talk about the system working? The system we're talking about is the fact that anyone can speak. And we had newspapers for decades and people with camera phones and social networks, there's no one that could hold them down. Well, guess what? They can be held down in TikTok and not by anyone that's remotely accountable to a government or to anything, but to the, the Chinese. Literally, that's where I was last week when I was ready to pull the trigger on something that basically outlined all these things. But there is another side to this. And I think it's important before we wrap up, like, I think the reasons to do it are more obvious, but the reasons not to do it are a little less obvious. And I think the first one you kind of just alluded to, which is like, we are not China. Let's be clear about what this is. And we can hide it behind many different reasons. This is in, in and of itself is a form of censorship. If we decide to ban these apps, like this is like taking a page out of a playbook of an authoritarian regime. And I mean, you just said it like succinctness with which you can sort of make the point, I think is very compelling, which is like, this is what China does, <laughs> you know, and it's like, yeah, that's a good point. I do, though, think there is a distinction to draw. Again, your counterpoint which I completely share is so powerful that maybe that's enough, right? But I think that the distinction to draw is that China's goal and the reason to block Facebook, the economic benefits, I think, ended up being a bit of a happy side effect. Happy side effects. They wanted to control the spread of information, of facts, right? They wanted to be able to censor news about Tiananmen Square. They wanted to be able to control the discourse around Taiwan or whatever it might be. Criticism of leaders. The goal here, I think, or the reason to consider doing this is not because you're trying to block certain facts. It's because you're trying to block the mindset that seeks to block facts, if that makes sense. You know, like at the end of the day, you can get thrown in prison for comparing Xi Jinping to Winnie the Pooh. Right. Last time I checked, there's not much punishment for making fun of the U.S. president. Right. Again, this is not a defense of Trump by any means, but there needs to be a little bit of a grasp on reality about the reality of what is allowed and permissible in the U.S. versus what is allowed and permissible in a place like China. The censorship is not actually about apps. It's about that. It's about the atmosphere. And the concern has to be the importation of an atmosphere and a way of thinking about speech and a way of thinking about discourse that is the paradox of tolerance sort of idea that will kill what we have if we don't protect it. Yeah, it is a really well-made point, but it would bring me to the next reason that maybe we need to be cautious about just doing this, which is this was a meme. I can't remember where I saw memes before memes came with photos. And it went something along the lines of there are three ways of getting something done. You can do it yourself. You can pay someone to do it, or you can forbid your kids to do it. And I feel like 
I mean, it's interesting, even on Instagram today, the fact that Pompeo had talked about banning TikTok, my feed was filled with like, what's this thing that Trump wants to ban? I should download it. And unless they get really, really serious about blocking it, I wonder the extent to which you're going to encourage people to find ways around this and get it anyway, or TikTok moves in such a way where it becomes really hard to like, we blocking specific, I, I just, I don't know, some degree of this is the Streisand effect where you're bringing attention to something and actually might have the opposite effect. The other is it's just like, again, like we're taking a Chinese playbook here where it's like the state will impose this on you and the state will go to a lot of lengths to make sure it happens. How far will America go to like make sure it happens? And isn't the right way to like stop this actually at the level of individual as opposed to the level of the state? Connected to that is once that capability is in place, whether that be a legal capability or a technical capability, that is a capability that's just waiting to be used by someone else. You know, there's an aspect where the internet is so ungovernable. Again, unless you invest like China did, where, you know, for many, many years, there were only three points where the internet entered China. And that was by design because that's where they could build the Great Firewall at those three points. Now there's like 10 or 11, but you know they've got it sort of figured out at this point. But if you're not going to take those sort of measures, the internet is just a hard thing to govern for better or worse. But once the capability is there, who's going to exercise that capability? And this gets to the point I've made to you repeatedly, right? You yeah. talk about wanting to control the social networks or, right. or who's doing the controlling. Well, in the U.S. system, that falls to the executive branch, which is headed by President Trump. Do you want President Trump making decisions about what's on Facebook or what's not on Facebook? And by extension, do you want making decisions about what apps are allowed and what apps aren't? I think the third reason not to do it is actually one that's played out a number of times. And it's actually the reverse of the Apple effect, which is Apple's become so dependent on China that Apple kind of toes the Chinese line a little bit and probably influences US policy to be more amenable to China. There's an extent to which the more Chinese companies are dependent on the US market, the more leverage we have. And if we just outright ban it without being careful about how we use that leverage, I think that's a wasted opportunity. And so there's an argument to say, actually, we want more Chinese apps here. And, you know, if China starts to piss us off, like it won't be an outright ban. It'll just be a Sisyphus investigation or it'll be CSAM or it'll be something else. And this is the exact tactic that China's been playing on Australia, where Australia led the call for an investigation into the origins of the coronavirus. And then beef started getting really hard to export from Australia into China. And then there were these barley tariffs and it's not outright, or sometimes it's hinted at, but it's like, oh yes, this didn't comply with some regulation. And so there are going to be problems and you can kind of use it to influence Chinese policy in a softer way when there's more dependence on the American economy. And the problem is if we do a wholesale ban, like all that leverage is used. And I think we should be thoughtful about how we use that leverage. I don't really buy this one. I think I disagree with you. I think it's really bad and unhealthy to try to use this sort of leverage. You know, it's getting very much into the, it's bad for the economy. It provides bad incentives. It gives a sort of tool that you're tempted to use for things that you shouldn't use it for, et cetera, et cetera. And also, I don't think China cares, right? We see this with Hong Kong. Like China clearly cares more about 
control of Hong Kong and bringing Hong Kong sort of under its thumb than they do about the Western sort of reaction to it. And even though it is going to hurt Hong Kong economically, which by extension China, right? There is a lot of shift to Singapore that's going on that is going to be not in China. And so yes, some will go into China, some will go to Singapore, but they're willing to accept that. And so I, I just not sure that leverage is going to work. Like part of the reason it works in the U.S. is because it's decentralized, because there's all these individual companies. You know, there's a collective action problem, as we talked about on a few podcasts ago. So I'm a little more skeptical of that one. Actually, what I take away from that is kind of the opposite, which is, again, adopting tactics that don't fit sort of our values is challenging. And, yeah. you know, by the way, there's one more point to make on this, which is. You think about how could this be done without building up infrastructure? Well, the infrastructure has already been built. The infrastructure is the app stores, right? There actually, it only takes two phone calls to get TikTok out of the US, which is a very interesting way to think about the sort of inherent issues with the sort of app store model. <laughs> Lest there be a day go by where you don't take a dig at Apple in the app store. It's not, I mean, it is a dig. But the point is, it's interesting to think about that. You always would think anytime this discussion comes up, well, how could the US even do that? It's not like we've built a great firewall. And it turns out this shift to mobile, and because apps are where it actually happens and matters, there does happen to be a point of leverage. Again, there's a legal aspect. How could the US legally do this? But the technical means actually already exist. Yeah. I mean, or you're back on web pages or something and a whole bunch of friction that nobody likes and makes right. it really well, hard. Someone else will win the market, right? If TikTok is a web app, like a native app is going to win. Hmm. Anyhow, I think they call this a wide ranging conversation. Yeah. I think covered a lot of interesting threads that both for this podcast and that have been happening in the news recently. So I just want to call out, I, I really appreciate that point you made at the end there where it's like, we need to be careful adopting tactics that aren't in line with the culture right? and the principles and what we uphold. It cast me back to that podcast we did after your article on China. And uh, we need to be careful about staring into the abyss too long because it can stare back. And I think that perhaps is the greatest risk of all. It is. But that is also a reason why you might need to cut it off. Yeah, it's true. This is a difficult one. Like I was so gung-ho about it. And then it's, uh, I've, I am now a little bit more conflicted. Yeah, there are good arguments on both sides. Honestly, I think I've come down on it's a bad thing. Again, TikTok can protest all they want. The fact of the matter is they are owned by a Chinese company with Chinese-based algorithms, and the Chinese government can and will and does come in and tell private companies what to do. That's just the reality of the matter. And that just seems fundamentally incompatible with a liberal open society to have that vector right into the heart of the yeah. discourse. I think I agree with you. Yeah. Well, thank God for the app stores. Uh, I no, I wasn't them. expecting you to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I will talk to you. I will talk to you soon. Sounds good, Ben. Take care. Right. Yeah, bye-bye.